I'm Pramod from Bangalore. Thank you so much for the uh, great lecture. Uh, we've been following you on a lot of social media and that's how I got to know about you. Uh, been very impressed with uh, the, what Infinity Foundation does. What I wanted to understand, and you know, a lot of things are very impressive when we think about it. And when I go back home, then we are back to you know, square one on a day-to-day -day basis. I know you took a bold decision when you were 44. I'm 36 now. Uh, I wanted to know two things. One is, what would you advise every Indian citizen? We know that all this is happening. I'm able to relate to it. What would you advise every Indian citizen in our own uh, capacity right, to perform on a daily basis that okay. we upheld our tradition and our heritage? And secondly, if we want to contribute in some way Infinity Foundation, how is that we can do it? Excellent question, thank you. So, my work is not simple, superficial slogans, giving some pravachan, chauvinism, you know, getting people excited and all that. So, that, for that there's other people. Mine is very deep original work and thinking, scholarship and so on. Therefore, the first requirement, anyone who want, who's serious about helping me, otherwise it's just wasting my time even, uh, because people come, they think they're all very excited, and they run away, then they all see me five years later and say, oh, don't you remember me, this kind of nonsense, you know, you know, I'd waste my time. So the first requirement is the person should have seriously read what I've written, seriously read what I've written. And this is, this is an answer to your first question, what should you do daily? I think you should take my books and take, do 20 pages a day, 10 to 20 pages a day, systematically. And sometimes you read it a couple of times to really make sure you got it. If after reading a couple of times that particular section did you didn't get it, then skip it because you'll come back, it'll make sense second time. Uh, the sections are written sufficiently independently that if you skip, you will it'll still be okay. It's not like a, a fiction story where you lose the plot. So there are a lot of points, very compact. And so to go through a book will take you a couple months. Don't do it in a hurry, like we, it's not a fiction reading, not light reading. Form a book club. We have a book club in Toronto, we have in Washington, in various cities, we have book clubs. So in Toronto, they started a book club with 11 members, and they meet once a week, and they agree on a particular chapter or a particular section. Everybody will read that, and then when they meet, they discuss it, clear up each other's doubts. That's a book club. And when they finish reading, each of these 11 became a leader of a book club in his area. So now there's many book clubs. This is a very interesting thing. So it, it, these people have become empowered. They can debate. They can argue. It has affected their thinking. They reinforce each other. And I respect it. So when somebody like that comes and says, how can I do, help you, what can I do, I take it seriously. Otherwise, some random guy comes, he's just showing off. You know? I mean, I, he hasn't put in the tapas. And you can't understand what I'm doing unless you put in the tapas. Otherwise, you can just sit there and keep wanting to be important and I waste my time then. So I would say start reading and start decolonizing yourself before you can tell others you're doing this, that, wrong. Look in your own thing. For instance, in the book Being Different, I have a chapter called Sanskrit Non-Translatables, where I've given example of about 20 words on which are being translated, in, and we should never translate them. We should use the Sanskrit word. So in your own life, make sure that those words, you're using them in, when you're speaking English, include that Sanskrit word and not the English equivalent, because the English equivalent is incorrect. I've explained why. So there are things like that if you want to, you can start arguing uh, what is different between us and the Abrahamic religions. Very systematically you can start. So when you read, you get empowered, you try out your knowledge in public with others, it will give you a sense of strength. So I would say you should read, watch some of the YouTubes also, because YouTube try to explain the same thing in a simple way, but you must read. If you've read even one or two of my books properly, there's hardly a person who's not been transformed. This much I'll tell you. So I'm not a popular writer where millions of people read, but then they go back to life. My readers generally are changed after that. And this I know because I get a lot of letters on this, that, who, what, how it changed them, what. So I would say the tapas you have to do for yourself is also the best way to help Infinity Foundation because my goal is to transform people. And when you do this, 
you become part of our wavelength and our thinking. And then we can go the next step and see how can such people be organized. I'm giving workshops on how to be an intellectual Kshatriya. That's the topic of workshop. And I gave in Toronto and everybody had to pay in order to make sure we don't have people who just come for eating, you know, samosa and pakoras and having chai and talking, oh, ha, ha, great, great, and then disappear. And uh, very organized with PowerPoints, four, four modules a whole day, morning till night. And finally, each person took a homework assignment, what he will do in the next few months. What, and we made little teams, and they'll do certain projects to carry it out. And then this uh, uh, intellectual Kshatriya workshop repeat, was repeated in Washington, and then a small version in Houston. So I would say, and one of the prerequisites is people have to have read at least one book properly uh, of mine, and uh, others they should become, other books they should be familiar with, and they should have watched enough YouTube videos, so that uh, we are not starting at square one and giving them very introductory basic ideas. They should have done enough homework of their own. Now, Bangalore has quite a lot of such people, has such people, because I've been coming here and I know this, I get a lot of uh, communication from such people. But there is no local leadership to really put them together. I keep getting a lot of emails from people saying, I can't do anything in terms of organizing, but if somebody else organizes, yeah, I can come. But somebody has to first be the leader. And the leadership requires time. You, nothing will happen without time. It requires commitment, perseverance, following up with all the people. And uh, you create a, a book club. You know, you create a book club, you read things, and if there is enough critical mass, then you, sh you can organize a workshop, I can come and do a workshop. So, you know, from being a reader and watching uh, YouTubes to uh, having a next level, having a, a book club to read together, like a little satsang of your own, to uh, having a workshop, are different stages. And as you become empowered in this new way of thinking, you will become so confident in talking to 50 other people, 100 other people, and so on. I tried unsuccessfully to take people quickly and give them my PowerPoint and give them a quick lesson how to repeat it, and it backfires. It creates people with the big ego, they start plagiarizing this material, writing their own blogs, and they don't even know enough. I have a lot of plagiarizers. A lot of people tend to pick up some point and write their own blog very quickly. And that's harming. They're not really helping. So, uh, that's my thing. Now, I also have a e-group, a discussion, online discussion group. I would, and uh, all those who have written their uh, email IDs, I'm going to send you an invite to join. We have over 5,000 members. It's like a satsang online, where people ask questions, they post some news item, they post some things, some ideas, issue, and I give a response, others give a response, and every day we are churning this knowledge. And this is uh, less than two years, we built it up and it's growing. Every time I come to India, a lot more people join. So I think you should join, all of you. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, unfortunately, I keep telling people, write your email ID in block letters so it's easy and won't be typing error. But would you believe all the emails I collect in India, you can't believe what percent bounce, 25%. People just don't care. They're writing. And so if you've written nicely your email ID, you'll definitely be receiving an uh, invite, and you have to accept, join Yahoo Groups, and then you are on the system. So these are the ways you can be connected with me. But I really appreciate your asking the question. Wonderful, sir. Thank you. I, I need, I, yeah. Sir, I'm uh, Lieutenant Murthy from Indian Navy, ex-retired person. Indian? Navy. Okay, good. Uh, sir, I've been... Uh, uh, looking at your blogs and looking at your <coughs> reports and also on Facebook as well. And thank you for sharing some critical information about one of the botanical books written in Malayalam and translated and owned by East India Company. Who is the owner of this East India Company? East India Company. East India Company was a British company. There was a French, uh, the British East India Company. Then there was a French East India Company, a Dutch East India Company, and a Danish East India Company, and maybe some others. There are major East India Companies. So these East India Companies don't long, no longer exist. They were uh, finished off and you know long ago. But these are the companies that started trade with India. 
And uh, you see what happened is that the uh, Ottomans, Ottomans, uh, which is a Muslim empire, were in the middle between Western Europe on one side and Asia on the other side. So they blockaded the Silk Route to India and China because a lot of manufactured goods and medicines and all kinds of things that Europeans consumed were made in India and China. We were the manufacturers and exporters and those guys were the, they did not have these things. They were giving us gold. India would get a lot of gold because did not need anything they had. So today it's different. They are the people supplying all the goods we are buying. But in the past we were exporters of manufactured goods and high-tech goods. So when the Muslims, when the Ottoman Empire captured the roots in the middle for several centuries, the Europeans couldn't get these things and there was a big struggle. So that is when Columbus went in one direction to look for a route for India and he landed up in America and he thought he's discovered India. And that's why the natives were called Indians, you know. And Vasco da Gama went around Africa. So they went in different directions. They were all funded by what you would today call venture capitalists to find trade route to India bypassing the, bypassing the Ottomans. Uh, like the Queen of Spain uh, was a, a major funding source for uh, Columbus. So, uh, <clears throat> you guys might not know this, but the, the so-called discovery of the route to India, Vasco da Gama claimed that he discovered going around Africa. Actually, uh, from the time, from the point he left the Mediterranean, a Gujarati captain, a Gujarati captain of a ship, escorted his ships all around Africa to brought him to India. Gujarati captain. His name is also known. It's written in history books. So it is not that they discovered. Indians were uh, trading through to the Middle East, all around Africa, and then on the other side to the ASEAN countries and China, Japan. Indians were trading all that. The Indian Ocean economy was around the India, India, India trade was very thriving globalization. What we are calling globalization is not something new. This globalization existed. And China was very much thriving the land route, the silk route, and India the ocean route. So these are not sort of discoveries. They, they just hired an Indian, they took him, you know. And uh, his the Gujarati sailor's ship was many, many times bigger than the Vasco da Gama ship following a bit later. And even British, so this is how they so-called discovered India. But then the Portuguese, Spaniards, they were doing this. Later, the North Europeans, Dutch, Danish, French, English, took over the domination of this. So we have to understand how the engagement with India was not as equal because we had a lot of knowledge, we had a lot of technology, we had a lot of manufacturing. <coughs> they came because they had guns and cannons and things like that. In Ajit Vodakal, Captain Ajit Vodakal blogs, that including Jesus, Aristotle, everybody came to India, they learned everything, they went back, and they started their own <coughs> religion. And no, this Jesus business uh, coming to India, I don't buy. Okay. And nor, nor is it good for us, because it, it, it gives a lot of reason for, okay, he's our own beta, you know, he's our own son, we should bring him back, you know, what's wrong, he's our own guy, they don't understand, we know, they don't understand Christianity is ours only, we should become Christian, what is the problem? This is what they have spread to confuse us. Whether he came or not, we can't determine. There are speculative theories. But whatever it is, it is not helping us in our favor. Uh, a lot of people think that proving that he was an Indian or something uh, makes it better for us when actually it, a lot of our fools therefore find a good, good reason to convert. It, it, it lowers the barrier to conversion. Uh, so I don't buy this Jesus India business at all. Uh, you know, and there is no, not that much evidence, very speculative connecting the dots kind of evidence. But anyway, yeah. Um, Ajitji Pranam, first of all, um, I'm, I'm sorry, because I was the one who interrupted you. I would like to publicly say so. No, no it's okay. It's I will okay. do Swathya. It's no, no, my no. mistake. I'll, uh, no, no, it's, okay. it's just that, it's just that I'm going with a certain flow of I ideas. Understand yeah, I, I, I understand that. No, but don't worry. I apologize. No, don't worry. Audience. I'm sorry. Um, then, um, thank you. And I'll just come to the question now. I, I was, I was also one of those very always trying to interrupt my professors and get arguments and fights with them and uh, uh, as a young person, so I fully understand. It's just that I'm now old guy, so I don't do that, you know. Although I still, I still, when I, when I started this work, 
my job was to go to conferences all over the US in these fields and sit in the audience and keep uh, interrupting and raising issues and problems and all. So I know what is not, uh, not a bad thing what you're doing. So one thing, uh, one thing is, of all the uh, problems that we are facing right now, we ha I, I have a huge interest in China, and I am also learning Chinese. So Chinese culture was also appropriated, the opium trade, and even they were made servants to the West, Britishers through, the, through their trade or through Japanese. But they have been able to rise, and recently also you also wrote, which is also my thought, we, we have Facebook, Twitter, but they have their own, they have their own uh, Weibo, they have their own QQ, why don't we also do it? Yeah. And, and also I'll just finish this question. Uh, so can we take an example from how China has been able to do it? They have been able to get back the civilization. In fact, they have a very decent movie also of uh, 12 zodiac signs. Yeah, so anyway, so China's story is different than ours because China but did not... Is, can no, we learn? From, no, no, but you've asked the question, so now I'll answer it. Now you should let Thank me answer Thank you so much. Okay, so China's story is... China's civilization never got disrupted. Ours got disrupted even before the British got disrupted by the Mughals, by the Islamic invasion. So we've, we've had long continuous one invader after the other. Whereas Chinese, you know, when they had foreign domination, it was for a very brief period. It, it, you need multiple generations to forget the memory of who you are. And we've, we had that. And China kept a Mandarin language. Today, the world's leading journals on China studies are in Mandarin from China. And the editorial board is Chinese. Many of them work for the People's Liberation Army, the government. Uh, so they're very nationalistic. They control China studies. India studies, the leading journals on India studies are not in India. Leading journals on South Asian studies are published in the West. Editorial board is theirs. Murthy Classic Library is another, going to be another one. Okay. Uh, Westerners, editor-in-chief. Four editors, four senior editors of the Murthy Classics are all non-Indians. Uh, so, you know, we're just feeding this because it's glamorous for us. It's fashionable. No Chinese billionaire or government would think of starting a, a classics library, giving to some Americans that you translate 500 books and tell us who we are and what we are and we don't know, sir. We are, you know, we don't understand. You are so good and all. This kind of a very slavish mentality you only find here, you see. So the real question is, why are there slavish, murti-type people who are so rich and still going to up, look up and can't have their self-esteem? And even to recreate self-esteem, you need their permission, and they have to give it to us, which is kind of self-defeating. So the real problem is that. The real problem is, is uh, the uh, Indians who got bought off uh, you know, in, through this long colonial process. You did not find Chinese emperors bought off that way. The Chinese uh, were always translating Western thought into Mandarin. Now, to make sure they understand the best ideas of the West on their own terms. Now, the equivalent thing would have been if Indians were always translating into Sanskrit, whatever new idea came from the West, translate it into Sanskrit, teach it in all the P-terms, in all the Sanskrit patshalas, and then keep up with their knowledge. That would have been the equivalent thing. But we did the opposite. We are happy that we translated the Sanskrit into English or Sanskrit into German. So we are happy because otherwise we feel nobody notices us. We have the complex of uh, being left out. And so the, we want to be included on the world stage. Uh, but we don't feel strong enough to be included on our terms. So we are saying, please don't ignore me. Please take me as whatever you want. Just take me in. At least give me a seat at the table. Maybe I'll just clean your shoes, but just put me there. Indian is really lacking his self-esteem in doing that. Why aren't we translating knowledge into our uh, terms? I did a project, Infinity Foundation did a project, a very brilliant uh, Indian uh, who is both trained in the Western philosophy, he has his PhD from Oxford, and a brilliant Sanskritist, and he had a guru, he, he, and he is also a practitioner, uh, he did a project for us at one time where we took Western, modern European thought, philosophy, you know, Hegel and Kant and Wittgenstein and all these fancy Western thought. And he translated, he did a summary of them in Sanskrit. He did. Because he knows the philosophy, he knows Sanskrit. And for a summer or two, he went to BHU, to Sanskrit people, taught it there. And he went to Tripati, Tirupati Sanskrit University. He went to the top universities. 
and he conducted a summer workshop where he would be the Westerner teaching the philosophy and ask them to give a response. Yeah, and he says that these young pundits from Sanskrit, you know, when they understood it being explained to them in the Sanskrit, they could give brilliant answers. He says they had answers to all the Western thought because I explained it to them in their terms. So I was so excited. I said, let's do this. Let's go to, would you be willing to just do this? And then he got a job offer from Tirupati University to be vice chancellor. So he was very excited. And I said, you go there and then we make the Tirupati University the center for new kind of education of Sanskrit Pandits where we teach them Western thought and how to respond to it. And he was very interested in that. Then he consulted, he's a Bengali gentleman, this fellow. Nothing against Bengalis, but it so happens. So he consulted a big brother Bengali, Ashish Nandi. He called him and says, Ashish Da, what do you think? And Ashish Da convinced him that this is a wrong thing. You'll be saffronized. Don't do this. You've got a good job in the U.S. Don't sit there. You'll ruin your life. So this guy did not go. And my project couldn't move forward because it's not easy to, uh, you know, this kind of person is very special. I mean, if he had done it, we would have been operating this for 10 years or more by now. We would have produced a huge amount of uh, Sanskrit scholars who also know Western thought and how to respond to it. This is what we need to do. So we have to reverse the process. And people like Murthy are accelerating the wrong direction. This is our problem. Uh, Rajesh sir, Pranam. Uh, yesterday I saw your debate with uh, Suhil Sethi. And uh, really thanks for that uh, debate that uh, you... Actually, it was just a two-minute clip, but uh, the rest of it, they did not let me speak No, much. it was there uh, for around 27 minutes. Yeah, so but I'm saying that uh, very little I could... I mean, the point is he's this yeah. showman and he's one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's yeah, the yeah. official advisor to the festival. Yeah? yeah. And uh, the person who is the head of the festival was moderating. So I am not given the stature yeah. as the, the equal. Yeah, know. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, sir, my question is that uh, what you uh, told about, uh, you know, our ancient teaching and all, I believe still it is going on in Bangalore, which I can see in uh, Patshalas and all. But the, uh, you know, problem with them is uh, spiritual gurus. They don't want to uh, see the, uh, you know, uh, the other world. They, you know, they want to concentrate on only spirituality. But for other people, uh, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, livelihood is also as important as, uh, you know, uh, spirituality. And uh, I believe that uh, education system in your Breaking India, what you have said, did, uh, you know, Dravidian and Aryans. The same thing we read, that, uh, you know, Aryans are outsiders. Right. So it's a problem with our education system. And, you know, how, how can, you know, yeah. uh, US solve that? Indian embassy in Washington, on the homepage, there is this uh, history, you know, write about India, India's great country constitution and all these, you know, whatever, all the good things on India. And there's also a section called history. When you look at history, it says India started with this Aryan invasion theory, Indian government site. So when I'm fighting these things with the school textbooks, they have to just say, Ramina Thapar agrees with us. Why, you did not, why do you have a problem? Indian government agrees with us. So you see, our own government has been encouraging these wrong ideas. And none of that has changed till now. It has not changed so far. These kind of things still go on. I, I was invited by the Foreign Service Institute in Delhi, which is where they train IFS officers. So when you become an IFS officer, when you pass the exam and you're selected for IFS, you go for several months of training. You live in that place. So there was a batch of 30. I was asked to address them. So uh, the reason I was invited is because somebody I know follows me, his brother runs the, he's the director there at that time. So I went there and I, I uh, my topic was, you know, what is the Indian grand narrative? Who are we when you go overseas as diplomats? How are you going to present yourself? And I started by explaining that Japan has a narrative, the Japanese diplomats understand, the Japanese businessmen understand, China has a narrative, Russia has a narrative, all these countries. You know, whether you're a businessman, whether you're a diplomat, when you're going overseas, you know how to present who, we, who they are. They know they have a sense of history and a sense of pride. And so you are going to be diplomats, you ought to know this. I thought they would be very, very interested and that they would already have the knowledge. But the group of 30 was divided into two kinds. The one kind was supportive and they were saying, sir, please teach us. We haven't been taught, but teach us. We want to learn. So I got very encouraged. But the other half 
very angry at my raising this issue. One guy said, I'm from Assam, what do you mean by the Indian narrative? We have our own narrative. Another one said, uh, uh, what do you think of Dalits? They don't share your narrative. What Indian narrative? What is this Indian narrative? Dalits, you ask a Dalit, he's unhappy with the oppression. So they had what I call the anti-narrative. The narrative of fragments. And my blog two, three days ago on uh, first post talks about two narratives of India. And the Delhi vote is a victory of the fragments narrative against nation. This is how I'm interpreting it. And it doesn't matter whether it's up, maybe up will disappear, but that fragments narrative is a very strong, powerful uh, force, political, with Western funding and Western support. So whether it's up doing it or somebody else will do it, in, a, in maybe in Karnataka it will be somebody else doing it, or up will do it. The force, the powers of breaking India forces is strong, is not going away. And the pro-narrative, pro-nation narrative, people don't have their act together. Because, as you said, the gurus are into only teaching a limited thing. They are not teaching the whole narrative. While, you know, why aren't we teaching Mahabharat? Why aren't we teaching the big narratives of our own past? Why it's more fashionable to read Shakespeare or something like that, you know, than our own narratives. These are considered old-fashioned. So you will find the government not doing this. Our education is not doing it. Media are completely hopeless. They don't want to. They will hate you if you talk like this. So our problems are very serious, not just one or two, uh, you know, agencies or organizations that are problems, but our problem is very, very serious. All I can do is make you aware. And you as an individual can take it upon yourself to seriously study this material, become an expert at it. When you are solid as an expert, then you can talk to 50 other people. That's what we have to do. It's a long process. I'm very, uh, you know, until the new government came in, people were not taking my word seriously. They would say that we'll get rid of Sonia Gandhi, sir, you don't know all problems will be solved. They didn't realize it's not so simple. So with Sonia Gandhi gone, you don't have that excuse anymore. So now why aren't we solving the problem? Yeah, it's, so the problem we are not solving because it's a very deep problem. Our leaders don't even know this. This is not their priority even. Priority of the political people get elected. Numbers game, we get so many percent here, that person, we, we give him this, he'll give us 4%, we sell him that. It's like that, trading, trading through power, power brokering. That's what it is. They're not really, the, 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 I, I don't see who's the big visionary of the Indian narrative, which is a think tank that really understands all this. There are a lot of people who have slogans and they'll plagiarize a little bit of what's been written and write something and come up with one-liner, you know, but that's not going to do the job. You really need serious workers. So they are neither in the, in the Hindu organization nor in the political organization. They are certainly not in the academic organizations. They are not in the media organizations. Where are they? That's a very big gap and vacuum that I find. Salam uh, ji. My background is I am an MBA from one of the premier institutes in India. I have read your three books uh, and I have a, a clarification that I need from you. See, a lot of people in Bangalore and Karnataka are Dvaitki followers. They are what? Dwait. Yes. Dwait philosophy. Yes. And the way our Dharma Gurus have taught Dwait to me is that Atma and Paramatma are different. So this is, uh, you know, this doesn't gel with the integral unity that you explain in your book. It does. Have I I'll understood you, it no, wrongly? Can I, can yeah, no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. Yeah, but very, very important point. The Paramatma-Atma relationship of distinctiveness in Dwait and Vishishta Dwait they are distinct, but still one is a form of the other. The, what is distinct is not that one is separate, having its own separate existence. One, one cannot have its own separate existence without the Paramatma. It's dependent. There's a dependency relationship. So that gives an integral unity. But the distinctiveness is permanent, but the Atman is an aspect of the Paramatma. But not, it's distinct. So it's like, so Paramatma's aspect is this particular Atma, this Atma, this Atma, all, all the entities, material, non-material, are really aspects of that. But they are distinct in the sense that you do not say the separateness, the separateness will go away in a unity consciousness. So in, in Advait, the separateness is, goes, but in Dvait, the separateness remains. But that is still very different than the Western idea of uh, a synthetic unity where there is a, the, the nature of distinction is different in that. So what we call Dvait is a, it is still relative existence. There is a distinction between the two, 
but uh, one one's existence is subordinate to the other. So it's a, there's a shift in that. And uh, if you read uh, if you read uh, uh, the Dvait people, they're quite prof they're very profound in understanding this. The Dvait people will say that the Advait experience is not ultimate. Actually, Advait experience uh, where you lose the separate identity is an interim experience after which you will get even higher experience. They will tell you that to you. And of course the Advait people will say the opposite, that this Dvait experience of dependency relationship is an interim but you, will, you are yet to go even higher. So we won't get into which one will supersede the other because I'm, I'll be happy to get either of them. Okay. Good evening, sir. Thanks for being here today. Uh, sir, my, it's not a question, it's more of your view. I want to know your view on this. Of late, there's been a sudden revival of interest in our culture, with a lot of people claiming that the aircraft was first discovered in India, plastic surgery was first discovered in India, IVF, everything's Indian. What is the third one? IVF, uh, cloning and all that. All that's discovered in India. Uh, so do you think... The, the second example is valid. The first mm. and third, I don't believe. But okay. go ahead. Uh, so do you think uh, it helps your cause in any way or or the younger generation wouldn't just buy it? They okay, feel all so let me give you, le okay, let me answer this because I, one of the projects Infinity Foundation did is we started a 20 volume series on history of Indian science and technology. And uh, I made a policy decision that we will only consider something valid if we can have proof today. So the Delhi Iron Pillar, you can go and check its properties and it's got a two micron phosphorus coating, you can check it, and you can look at how it was, must have been made, what temperature they needed, what physics and chemistry they needed to make it. So you can do the reverse engineering today. So if you look at the tiles in the Harappan and uh, in, the civil, in the Saraswati civilization, you can look at the, what, how they must have manufactured it. So my series decided that nothing which is, which is sort of a statement in a literature, literary text without physical evidence, uh, we are going to accept. That doesn't mean we reject it. It means we are not willing to accept it. It means it's still up for debate. So if somebody says there were nuclear bombs in Mahabharat, I told them, you show me a crater with radioactivity. We'll take a Geiger counter because uh, if there has been a nuclear bomb, then for tens of thousands of years, it will have radioactivity. So take me to any place in Kurukshetra or anywhere with a Geiger counter and show me this is the demarcation of radioactive. Nobody has shown that, so we can't admit it. If you want Pushpak Viman that existed, then show me a crash site where there's even some part of it or a diagram, visual, not uh, that somebody was going in a Viman, okay. That could be uh, interpreted in many ways. You know, we don't necessarily know there was a physical object which carried them, maybe there's some other kind of uh, uh, Te the teleporting, maybe it's teleporting and maybe we will, human beings will discover teleporting in the future and those people already had it, maybe. So there is plausibility but not certainty. There's a difference between a plausible argument in science where you give a scenario and you've shown that this is plausible. All these are plausible but my book series will not go with plausibility as a standard but put a higher standard of we can prove it today to any skeptical scientist that this is the case. Now, I think there is advantage in stratifying it. There is advantage in saying, do 20 volumes on what is certain. Establish credibility. Get in the door. Don't mix it up with what they'll consider quackery. So this way, what we are producing, there is no doubt because you can come and check it for yourself. You know. So, uh, if there is a Ayurvedic old text, which says you make this mixture, that mixture cure, and then apply it this way, that way, and it will cure this disease, you can subject it to test today. And there are a lot of Ayurvedic uh, R&D centers that are testing with modern techniques, are testing, and what is tested and succeeds should get in, what fails should be rejected. So you have to subject it to scientific validation. Yeah. If you do that, you will find there are a huge amount of things in mathematics and astronomy and physics and chemistry are valid. And you also find that there are other things which are written in some text. We cannot validate it, but we cannot reject it either. We, we have to say this is an unproven claim. So I think if we behave in this manner, we are more successful uh, because we are credible people, we are skeptical, we are not accepting it as dogma, than if we just go around saying everything was known and so on and so forth. So I don't believe that uh, kind of chauvinism. I am trying to be very 
solid, rigorous, scientific kind of person. That puts a lot of credibility into all the claims, yes. and it makes yes. it more believable. Thanks yes. a lot. Yes. Sir, I was really fascinated by your 12-year uh, to 7-year education program. Would you, uh, could you comment or share the learnings that have come through from that experiment of yours? Okay. So there is a Pandit Ram Samuj in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. If you write me an email, I'll forward it to him. He's the hero. He's a person who's a robotic engineer from Trinidad, a Hindu, who's a Pandit. And he left his robotics and whatnot and, and started doing the, uh, helping our cause. And he discovered this Lozanov. I was, I'm more of a historian of digestion, so I, my interest in Lozanov is not to re replicate it. He's replicating the knowledge, taking back to our tradition. My interest was more to be able to claim that this tradition that they're talking about is not discovered by them, but it came from India. So we have complementary interests. I'm doing it as part of my multi-volume on digestion and U-turns, and he's doing it as an actually trying to reproduce that old Vedic knowledge. So the best would be you, if you are interested in knowing more, and I would like people in India to start getting in connection with him. He is looking for partners in India. If you write to me, I'll send, you, send him the email and you can be in touch with him. But imagine one man on his own, uh, he convinced some donor, imagine it's good donors too, you know, this donor gave a million dollars anonymous. We still don't know who it is, only Ram Samuj knows. But some donor, I think one of the Hindu, some Hindu donor, gave million dollars for this project on the condition that the university will match it with their own million dollars. And the university, we went and I went there, talked to the chancellor and all that. They were very impressed. They also put their matching and they left uh, Pandit Ram Sambhuj in charge of this project. So he's running it and very successfully. So like one of their uh, sample student groups are the Bhutanese refugees. There are a lot of Bhutanese refugees going different places. So these Bhutanese refugees teaching them and the state is very happy because they know English, they're very poor. So he's, he's got using this accelerated learning to make them into very sharp students. And then they get into good colleges also. So this is, this is working. And we ought to get these models back in India rather than some buying some foreign stuff, which is huge tuition and trying to go for the glamour that I got this degree from such and such place. It's become fashionable among Indians to say that I got my uh, such and such degrees, uh, foreign linked here from there and on, you know. I, I feel very unhappy about it. Uh, good evening, sir. Basically, yeah, uh, myself, Meghna. And basically, my questions revolve around the role of youth as such. Myself, I'm studying in Christ uh, University, and a part of my subject is sociology. And this semester, we are studying the study of Indian society. So in class, we see a whole lot of uh, things that are being talked about uh, about Indian society. And as you rightly pointed out, the colonial minds of Indian people as such are discussed. And how the, the construction has to be done. When teacher speaks about Vedic tradition, literature, culture, about Samadhyana and all those stuff, my classmates will feel really excited about it. And they take part in it. And they also recollect our rich culture and heritage. But then, when the class gets over, the scenario is entirely different. They speak about, dude, why are you not, why are you not playing guitar? It's so lame to play veena. See, come on, be liberal as such. I really not understood what liberal they mean by. And then, yeah, uh, why are you dancing classical, uh, classical songs? Come on, be Western, open up, don't close your minds. So as, as I was pondering about, about all these things, I was thinking about Swami Vivekananda and how he suggested the solution for all the problems should lie from the grassroots level. And the grassroots level for the Indian society is the youth. So what, in your opinion, should we do to cherish all these things? Well, what you should do is you're a smart person. I can tell you're bright and you have a passion. You are not going to give up easily. You articulate. So you, if you read my books, you and really get deep into understanding, then you create a little group of where you debate, you discuss, and get five people like you, and then five will grow. So the grassroots needs, see, we need three components, three components to have a renaissance or a revival. 
we need knowledge. That is my job. I'm doing regional research, trying to supply you with knowledge, ammunition. But then, second component is we need to train leaders with that knowledge. Yeah, that is where you come in. You have to train yourself and become a leader, then you can lead others. But you first have to train yourself. I don't have an academy where I can train people because I don't have one. So the second, the first is the knowledge, content, subject matter, expertise. Second is the human resource who have to be trained in this. And the third is you have to have institutions where they are continuing this from generation to generation. You know, like Bharti Vidya Bhavan is a great institution, IGNCA is a great institution, you have some institutions. So uh, the role of institution is that you need a body, you need a home, you need physical structure, legal structure where there is funding available, resources, infrastructure. So you need institutions also. Now, in our country, unfortunately, these three are disconnected. So I have the content, but I don't have an institution and I don't have a human resource. But there are people who are gurus, they got a lot of chelas who will do anything they tell them. But they don't, may not have that content beyond a very narrow teaching. They don't have that content. So if they invite me, I can teach to their people. But then they should not be threatened by me. They should not feel that, oh, this guy will come and whatnot, because I'm just coming to help, you know. You see? And I'm not at all ambitious to create my own institution. I am happy I can be a guest teacher in your institution to your students. Now, what more can I do? I don't even want to be paid for it. You see? So I am, it is not easy for me to get these kind of connections because the political groups, Delhi-based, are very parochial, very suspicious of somebody who's not from within. Oh, he may be, he may know. We should send a man to copy a little bit what he knows, bring it to us. But he shouldn't come. So Rajiv's knowledge is great, but Rajiv himself may be dangerous. This is... This is a problem we have. I'm a science student from Christ University. I have been personally benefited from your talks and books. My, original, my question is, ancient India had many great scientific discoveries in both science and technology, but even you will not find either environmental degradation or ethical spiritual vacuum that is pathetically ubiquitous today in today's world. How did they achieve that balance? What was the question? Ethical? Ethical vacuum. I mean, they did not have environmental, environmental degradation or ethical vacuum, which yes. is so ubiquitous today. Yeah. How did they achieve that? Yeah, this is very important because the, the idea of uh, the, the, the integral unity is a, is a system where the environment is part of who we are, right? And the ethics comes from this whole tattva masi, you are that, this whole ethical basis. So uh, this idea that uh, the science that the West came up with is based on the philosophy, the cosmology of world is matter only. There is no divinity, there is no shakti in it, there is no, you know, nothing spiritual about it. So therefore, therefore, protecting the environment is a very artificial thing for them, which has been invented only recently and only to prevent the raw material from finishing. So when they say we, we conservation, conservation means don't let your uh, raw material finish, conserve it. It doesn't mean you really respect it. Correct. Whereas in our case, the nature of the cosmology is such that the respect for nature is built into our philosophy. So it's a very different thing. My second, my sec second question is, uh, in our friends' discussions, when I give an example from mathematical calculation from Yukti Basha, they easily understand it and they say that it is very interesting and scientific, it is very interesting. But when I say that it is from India, they become skeptical. So how to, from you, from So what you have to do is, you have to give them the actual text of that source, and then it's English translation, and then how you apply it, and say this is where it is, and uh, this is well established. You see, the quacks have harmed you and me, because I can tell you are a scientific person with rigor, so am I. And what I'm trying to do is same as what you're trying to do, base it on actual rigor. Uh, but the quacks of our side have just gone chauvinistically. They're not scientifically trained. They don't understand one thing from another. They don't understand a, a claim from a fact. It may be a claim, but maybe not proven. And so therefore, they reduce the credibility of the whole thing. I think we should go to the next year. But a good point you made. Hello, sir. Good evening. Sure. And it's very unfortunate. First time I have heard about you. 
and first so you, it's your misfortune that you heard me exactly so <laughs> so and i come with my friend pramod srinivas sir uh, with the profession uh, my, myself is vijay pandey and with the profession i am a uh, education consultant i am in consult with more than 5000 students from kochi to tilmun district nagaland and uh, twang so my question is how do i will be going to carry your idea to such a huge crowd number one number two if i'll be going to organize such events let's take an example of guwahati or uh, you know itanagar or kolkata will you be able to come sir okay so first first advice is that each of us has to decolonize and reeducate ourselves before we can do it to other people so the education system that you are teaching with my knowledge and my ideas first you have to read you have to understand and apply it in your own life really get into the details of what i'm trying to say now there's two of my three books are in kannada being different is in kannada uh, vibhinata is called and uh, breaking india is in kannada it was launched uh, yesterday uh, hindi also both these books are in hindi also yeah you can go online and uh, get the if you go to my website rajimalhotra.com you get the names and then you go to flipkart with those names and search and you find them there so first you have to get really solidly entrenched in this knowledge then only you can figure out for the age level and the particular students whatever kind they are what how much they can understand how much you can teach that is your next job the second question as long as as uh, far as my availability is concerned i go where i get maximum impact in terms of transforming people so i don't go where it's a casual group or just one guy who want to spend a lot of time with me it's not interesting for me so for me what is interesting is a large gathering of very serious people yeah so if you send a proposal you have to tell me what what it is that you want me to do because if i go somewhere far now bangalore is good because in a few days i can do a lot of events yesterday i was at art of living it's a huge event huge number of people exceedingly plugged into what i'm saying and i was it was delightful in the morning we had a great book launch so you know uh, if i go to a place where there is uh, many many events and uh, my time is utilized well and there are large events and substantial people who are really serious about it i'm happy but if i go far away and there's a tiny one event somewhere and they are not even that serious about it i feel sorry for them because they need the work but i have to look after my own priorities also so it all depends on what your proposal is you have to send it to me thank you final question then we are done yes sir uh, my question is on temples right from the tip of kanyakumari to the greater west of pakistan and greater east of uh, bangladesh we have had loads of temples and, and all the way to angkor wat yeah. and bali yes so and afghanistan and uh, tajikistan and uh, uh, all these stan you know i i was at a ayurveda place recently Uh, getting some medical treatment and there was a woman from uh, afghanistan who settled as a child they went and settled in germany so she's german of afghani background a very proud and uh, loves india and this and that so i always test these people how far i can push them yeah so uh, she was into this uh, you know her language is nothing to do with sanskrit is persian so this is into that while really uh, you know uh, loving india and its food and all these symbolic things but in terms of philosophy and where she comes from she did not know anything about zoroastrian when i said that it was a pre-islamic civilization and that was very much linked with our civilization the old iranian was linked with sanskrit and all none of that she was very blocked and then i said do you know even sthan like afghanistan pakistan sthan is a sanskrit word and she was dumbfounded i said even your name is a sanskrit name all these sthan countries are basically sanskrit oriented so you have to ask why is kazakhstan called kazakhstan why they call themselves it is the kazakh jati uzbek jati tajik das jati turkmen jati and those the sthan of those jatis is the name of their country that is how it is based only pakistan there is no paki jati <laughs> okay um so so the, when you are trying to do look at the geography all the sthan countries you got to include okay so and there are temples there yes i yes. understand sir so it's like this 
I am aware that we were a totally practical country back 5,000 years ago. And uh, our temples were built on a specific geometry. And um, the knowledge on this geometry is lost over a period of time. And when you sit for a debate with somebody who's going to criticize you right at this point, it's going to hurt bad. And now, right now at this particular point of time, how are we going to take back that knowledge when so, we go for a debate? Okay, so the, con the particular, de there are many debate topics. I talk about them in my intellectual Kshatriya workshop. So the topic on the geometry of the temples is one to be raised. In US, there is a there's a guy who worked in the Infinity Foundation for a while. His name is Krishnan Ramaswamy. And he just finished his three-year training as a sannyasi in the Swami Dhyanand's organization. He got the three-year program to be an acharya. And he's back in the US. Uh, you know, and he's a very brilliant man. Uh, he's one of the co-authors of this book, Invading the Sacred, which I, we put together. He's one of the co-authors of that. He has spent the last two years discovering and writing, he's writing a book on the geometry, cosmic geometry represented in the temples and the whole scientific process of how the temples, where they are located, how they are, the whole geometry. And I think he's going to teach a workshop in the US. So some people exist who are trying to understand all this. That's good news. Yeah. I think uh, someone has written Thank you, thank you very people. much. Yes, sir. Okay, we heard great philosophy and principles, but at grassroots levels, conversion, old, uh, some, the Hindu popular, whatever in India, any plans against conversion? So anyway, what I'm talking about is any plans against conversion. I cannot, sitting US, uh, come up with plans against conversion. I mean, I write a lot, which gives ammunition and arguments for people that they can use, but the, to carry it out, Others have to do it. I cannot do it. You can join my e-group, uh, uh, where we talk about all this conversion, who is doing what and how we should argue, what we should do about it. Uh, you should join the e-group and you will learn some ideas. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Raju.